Aloha again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And we're coming off the holiday weekend, and we're marching toward the end of the year, where we're looking to finish strong across the length and width of the Outsports family and enter 2022 running towards the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Now, there's been some good programming earlier this week. Five rings had Olympic silver medalist Raven Saunders. Check that out. It was It's worth the time. It's an excellent interview. And a great story coming out story on the designer of this year's Super Bowl logo. Jim Budzinski had that. You'll need to check that out. Now, for myself, made some of the rounds over the holiday, including an appearance on Transition Stories with Phoebe Rose. And I was on the Arden Heart transatlantic call-in show subbing for kitty montgomery i had a lot of fun doing both shows and i will link both of those shows underneath this podcast at our twitter page and i'll put the video up as well at transporter room 10 forward on instagram and i also had a chance to talk to sailing ace stephanie helms on the transatlantic call-in show where we discussed the new ioc Framework for participation. The other thing that's really great about this about this uh, framework is uh, the insistence that any restrictions arising from eligibility criteria should be based on robust and peer-reviewed research, yeah. not somebody's opinion that that uh, uh, my child is being you know is being unfairly disadvantaged in terms of scholarship or or you know. These, uh, 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 what's the word, anecdotal uh, demonstrations of this person, that person. No, peer-reviewed, robust, and peer-reviewed research. You can't pull discriminatory policies out of your butt and, and, uh, and apply that uh, to, a, uh, to an area of, of human activity that the IOC itself declares is a human right. Ain't we human? Yep. Yeah. No, oh, no, I'm with Stephanie. We've had these conversations Seriously. many a time, and I'm with you on it. But again, that also goes back to having people with the expertise and who can really speak to this and who are stakeholders in inclusion at the table. And to me, that's the biggest thing more than anything else. All sporting bodies that are talking about this, no matter where you're at, no matter what level, if I, I need people who are willing to stand up to the focus on the families and the ADFs and people like Ross Tucker and say, you're not about inclusion. You can't be a part of this process. Get out. You're not allowed in this. You can't have a seat at the table yeah. because simply put, oh. we're about inclusion. You aren't. You don't have a state. You don't see you don't have skin in the inclusion game. So if you can't be down with the inclusion, you can't be here. And this was coming off. A discussion on five rings to rule them all last week. And it was a lively exchange between our own Sig Ziegler and friend of the podcast and multi-sport athlete, Kirstie Miller. Kirstie, are you telling me that you believe trans athletes should be allowed to have testosterone levels between 10 and 14 nanomoles per liter and compete in the women's category? Is that what you're telling me? Ah, they, they should be, what I'm saying is there should be no blanket 
trying because so they but but they should be potentially no 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 no, no they shouldn't be said and the OIC have have specifically said that it has damaged the health by having this blanket policy right. Kristen Morley won the court case in Toronto showing that it does damage. Kristen was granted a therapeutic use exemption, right, to bring her levels, and they only allowed her to bring her levels back up to five, right? When Kristen tried to re-enter sport with the levels of five, her body still broke down. She still get, got complete muscle atrophy. She's still getting osteoporosis, lung disease, about 200 negative complications in her life. and. Like I said, my endocrinologist now is trying to get my levels up to about 14 just to remotely start repairing some of the damage that I've had sustained over the last seven years. And such discussions are commonplace for Miller. A battler who grew up in Wagga Wagga, Australia, a four-sport athlete who re represented her state, New South Wales, in sport and represented her country in modern pentathlon at a world championships. She's also boxed. She's participated in Australia's seemingly official religion footy and later played soccer. And after sports along the way, she became a prison guard and was considered one of Oz's toughest. She returned to sport after finding her truth. It was 2013. She became the first transgender woman to hit the pitch in soccer in, her, in where she resides now, Broken Hill. And now she's on what she considers a mission to make sports safe, fair, and welcoming for transgender people. And it's a mission that a number of groups around the world, including the IOC most recently, have taken to heart, we think. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Beaming up from Broken Hill, New South Wales, Australia, our good friend Kirsty Miller, Energize. Kirstie. Hi, Carly. Great to be back on the show. I'm, I'm so excited to be beamed up again and, and to talk about this very um, exciting time with the OIC new framework. It's, it's a massive time for us. It's been a paradigm shift in a week. Well, let's go into it. Why is this a paradigm shift? I, I for uh, example, have healthy skepticism. Why is yep. this a paradigm shift? Because what it is doing from last week to this week, it is treating us all as individuals instead of a monolithic community. That is the number one paradigm shift, and that is the number one thing that I have fought for um, from day one in this in, in this discussion. That we should be treated as a, as individuals, not monolithically. Um, there's no more less monolithic community than a transgender community. So this this shift here now focuses on the individual. You cannot compare Kirsty against Carly or Kirsty versus Hannah. We are just so diverse. So this is a massive thing. So every individual now can only be treated on their own merits. And, and that's what I believe is the way forward, individuality and diversity and, and celebrating this difference. So it's a massive change. And I can see it not only benefiting it trans women, I can see now that um, intersex women and cisgender women with high testosterone, this is going to actually bring us together and stop us focusing on, you know, different sizes between, like, we're all women. And I believe this is going to stop the gender stereotypes and the body stereotypes. So 
I actually think it's a massive step forward for all women in sport. Now, but the question still remains, how can the IOC do this if there's nothing binding on the governing bodies themselves to, for example, use the principles? How can this work if there's nothing binding? Absolutely. Well, what the OIC have done with this framework, right, is they've given 10 principles for other sports organisations to follow, right, and know that it's not binding. The OIC cannot bind um, the, some local weightlifting society in, in Kansas or whatever, you know. They can't compel them, but they can strongly recommend, and this is what the OIC has done in 2003 and 2015, they were never binding guidelines. Like, since 2015 alone, we've had around probably 50 different policies created off the guidelines of the OIC because the OIC have never, ever, ever made their policy and said all sports should just adopt this. They've always wanted sports to use it merely as a guide. Now, where the OIC now have not put a blanket testosterone rule in, right, because we've got to think the OIC is dealing from sports, from weightlifting to to um, equestrian events. They cannot have one policy for all, right? So that was a massive positive step forward. A- and, um, like, moving forward in this, moving forward in this, we don't need more more studies on how long it takes for Kirsty to reduce whatever level because it's impossible to do these studies. Um, we'd all have to be living in a lab. So now, example, we've had about, like I said, 50 sports develop their own policies. There's a lot of skill already in these sports. And a sport like the AFL has tackled this issue about three and a half years ago where they determined back in their 2018 policy that the the, the gender identity, a trans person, is not intrinsically an advantage just on the individual. So... The AFL has always had a criteria to assess the individual trans athlete, and that is by physical tests. But the physical tests that they do to test the athlete's strength, the, the trans athlete's endurance, the trans athlete's physique, are the exact same tests that they do on the cisgender girls in the competition. And this is what every sport's going to have to do now. They can't just say trans girls have got an advantage without looking at all the people in their sport. So the AFL have already done that. They go back every two years. So Kirsty comes along and applies. They now have the benchmarks of what would be a disparity. And they've got to look at this disparity by Kirsty. They can't treat Kirsty as Hannah or Kirsty as Carly. They can only look at me. So this is the type of study that sports moving forward are going to have to do. And and so like the OIC have identified and like the, the AFL have identified, it's not the, the, the source of the disparity, it's the disparity that's important, if that makes sense. So if, if a trans person is 5 foot 6 and, and 100 kilos and a cisgender girl is 5 foot 6 and 100 kilos and has equal strength and equal endurance levels, the... The, the disparity comes from the actual disparity, not because I'm trans or because I'm cisgender. So this is why this individuality 
of the OIC now has moved forward. So all these other sports could refuse and, and not implement the OIC policy like the IAAF has said by Carly. Now, the IAAF is now leaving itself open to legal challenges at CAS and also in the courts outside of sport, and that they are the courts that we've already got a precedent in there. So all it's going to take is one trans athlete, like, say, CC Telfer, to, to, or one like me that's post-operative and says, it's unhealthy for me to have five nanomoles, and I can prove that now. The OIC's already admitted that athletes like Kristen Worley have been damaged and athletes like me have been damaged. So they're leaving themselves open to litigation. The OIC being smart on this. They know the legal framework. They know So other sports can choose to ignore the OIC at their own peril, and they'll find themselves in the dock, and they'll be held accountable, such as Kristen Worley did in Toronto in, in 2017. There's... It's not even questionable the debate on this, Carly. It's been determined in a court of law. The science proved beyond any doubt that androgen deprivation is a very serious illness. And that's what they have forced athletes like me, athletes like Caster, and other XY intersex athletes to reduce their T. We've all become unwell. That's finished now. So any sport that wants to ignore the OSC science, Kirsty will challenge every Australian sport in the, in the Human Rights Commission. I will win. The days of comparing cisgender men to, to transgender women, that's gone. There's none of this anymore with the new OIC policy. We are all individuals, and, and I'm absolutely stoked. Now, one thing, looking at the, the AFL's policy, can this work? For example, could this be a world rugby policy? Could this work? Absolutely. The only thing that our AFL policy would have to, to take out would be the blanket testosterone level. If they remove that, and because there's no use measuring testosterone levels, right? The only science with testosterone is it makes absolutely no sense to have it as a, as a determination of who's a female or a male or determined sports category. That is totally out of the park now. That is never going to happen again, right? And any sport that does it is following no science. Back in 2011, South Australia, uh, South Africa rugby did a study of their elite female players, and they did the same tests that they did with the AFL women's, right? The 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 um, the burpee jumps, the star jumps, the 30 meter sprint time, and they tested all the exact same things, and on every physiometric characteristics they found in these elite female players, I was on the complete bottom rung, Carly. I was on the complete bottom rung. So absolutely every sport now must do what the AFL is doing. And because, as I said at the start, it's not the source of the disparity that's important. It's the actual disparity in strength, endurance, in physique or speed, depending on the sport. Not if you're trans. It doesn't matter if you're trans, cis, or intersex. If you're the one with the disparity, that's the one with the disparity, not a group of people. Impossible to do anymore and not allowed to do so. And even in Australian law and in British law, the same thing, Carly, that sports can seek a temporary exemption to exclude transgender people, but if that temporary exclusion is challenged by a trans athlete, the sport must prove that I have an unfair disparity, impossible to do to Kirsty on minus 3.2 osteoporosis. 
I was put in the ICU recently for a lung disease. So yeah, to blanket ban me just doesn't make any sense, to blanket ban any individual. So absolutely, it should be the benchmark. And that and a combination of that and the Australian cricket policy, I believe we've got best practice there. Absolutely. It just needs a, a, a slight tweaking. It will address fairness. It will address safety. It will address absolutely everything. And it will treat every female the same. Now, how do you answer to those? There are certain people out there who will still say, if you get, ri get rid of the T-regulations, um, you're going to have men's sports. It's just going to be all men's sports across the board. How do you well, answer the people who are going to say that? Before we transition as, as trans women, XY trans women, around 25% of us naturally would have lower testosterone levels than the 10 nanomoles now. Like 25% of elite male athletes and elite male Olympic champion athletes in sports like weightlifting have levels below the 5 nanomoles naturally. But... Other girls like me, I was 30, but there's no correlation between me being more athletic at 30 than this person at five. So the ones that had this arbitrary T-level before, it made no sense. It was just an arbitrary T-level. There was no assessment of speed. There's no assessment of endurance. There was no assessment of, of strength or physique. It was merely an arbitrary T-level, which makes absolutely no sense. And anyone that says it does, they're not even at the starting line anymore, Carly. They're truly not. So absolutely. And, and there's girls now, about 13.5% of girls at XX have high testosterone levels, you know. And there is in each individual human being, there is um, around 100 different androgen receptors, 40,000 genes, nine different chromosome types. So the possibilities of with volume T to, to determine athletic performance, the infinite possibilities that can never happen Carly. So those people have got to put it out of their mind and stop comparing this, how long does it take Kirsty to minimise this or that. That's irrelevant anymore. That's totally irrelevant because we don't, we don't, um, like in sport we allow, you know, we don't allow unfair advantage. We allow advantages. There's advantages just, the parents you've, you've got born, you know, there's advantages for being um, a girl with with plus compared to one that's not in some in some things, you know. So we're all individuals now, and that's what people have got to put out of their head. So instead of an arbitrary T level, which meant nothing, right? Which meant there could have been trans girls that didn't even have to reduce their T and competed normally under the old system, right? Under the old ten nanowatt. And, and they didn't have to reduce these. This way now here, if that person comes in and they've got a massive disparity that can now be proven, it must be proven, so they've got to show that this person's got an endurance level way above and beyond any other girls in the competition or they've experienced in the sports, hey, the heavyweight champion of the male boxing wants to transfer and be a, compete with girls tomorrow. If the boxing's done the, the homework, to show that this person's got a massive, massive, massive disparity, that person then can be outed on an individual basis. So moving forward, it's still going to capture people like me that were a world champion that will probably need a little bit of time in some sports, 
but not in every other sport. Like, why would Kirsty have had to to spend two years on the sidelines to enter into equestrian as a female, or or into archery, or into see? It never ever ever made any sense to have every sport the same, Carly. Even within a sport, like we know ourselves, our endurance levels reduce quicker than our strength. If we want to look at size and weight and stuff like that, well, the AFLW, like I said in the first year, the range of, of height went from around uh, five foot one to like six foot three, and amounts to six foot, and, and, and the weights went from like 40-something kilo to 132 kilos, Sarah Perkins, Hannah Mouncey is 100 kilos. So all they had to do was, if Hannah had an endurance level, the, the checks under AFL, you're better off checking a VO2 level way before you're checking a, a, a testosterone level because that makes no sense. You're better off checking the muscle mass. You're better off checking the height, the weight compared to the others. Measurable criteria. T levels are not measurable. They don't make any sense at all. They make no sense. Like I said, the only science to testosterone is you can't use it in sport anymore because there's no correlation. There is a quote, though, that I have in front of me. A plain text reading of this document suggests that any athlete could be excluded from the female category if she could be shown to have a disproportionate advantage, even if she is indisputably female. As written, anyone who is, quote, too good for any physical reason may be cast as unfairly unsettling the playing field. Now, before you respond to that, here's who wrote that. Dorian Coleman, Duke Law School, and Martina Navratilova, who some people feel is really a check word for Margaret Corrett. Yeah. Now, how do you... No. These are two people who. These are two people that you work with on the on the women's sports policy working group, and they wrote a a massive article in Quillette a couple days ago, which basically said, "quote The IOC has shirked its duty to lead by getting rid of the testosterone regulations." The, the, these two were shown. Like I actually responded to that quite heavily on Twitter yesterday, and called both. Doreen and Martina out on this. They're, they're living in the past, right? Um, and, and the statement that they've made, right, that's happened to women since day one. Any woman that's excelled, i.e. Casta Semenya, it has been outed as either being, and, and, and Martina herself, back in, in, in the 1970s, I'm a bit older than you, Carly, but I can remember um, people thinking she was a transgender person back then and, and, and she was... Um, took steroids or and she was a lesbian before she came out and and all this stuff from day one of women's sport that any woman that's ever any good that they, they, they you know considered as another we don't celebrate um caster like we do you know the men that their marvels were while people like caster are treated as outcasts and interestingly enough you know they they, they bring the the intersex people in to try and strengthen the debate against transgender people and they use the experience of the Rio Olympics and that one that one podium finish where we had three intersex women on the podium in the 800 meters well but that's the other thing intersex that has not been proven that has not been proven that has not been proven that they are intersex that has not been proven that has not been proven in any of those cases 
absolutely. The only thing is that with that there, they're using the, the, the other side are using this as proof of the advantage, right? That was point six nine of the podium finishes in Rio, right? Yes. So not 90, 90.31% of the other podium finishes were all won by excess cisgender girls, you know? So that they just pick one little thing, Carly. And, and so that's one Olympics, 0.69 of the podiums at one Olympics out of nine that we've even had intersex athletes. And there's been no transgender females on that podium at all, as we, we know. And I'm really disappointed that, that I thought um, Doreen and, and Martina had learned a bit along the way in this, but sadly they haven't. They're, they're, they've gone backwards with this statement they've come out. Um, they're not up with the science at all. And um, I, I'm really disappointed in them. So, you know, they're not even at the starting line anymore. They've got to start again with their knowledge to go back. They're, they're really, truly tears in the headlights. Now, one thing, what to begin with? Because it raised some eyebrows. I'll raise my eyebrows that you, that you became a part of the Women's Sports Policy Working Group. What led you to, work, to begin working with them? What, where did that alliance come about? From being in the conversation a long, long time. And from the start, I've seen, particularly since 2015, where it's escalated, that it's them and us, right? And in Australia, I saw what happened when them and us worked together, when I was part of the, the federal guidelines. I was a key stakeholder that we had a two-year consultation period. and. And in that two years, we had cisgender women and trans women and, and, and all other athletes working together. And so, and, and these people were pumping out stuff that, you know, some of it looked quite good, but it needed still a lot of tweak in the women's sports group. But I thought they're trying to find a solution. I wanted to find a solution too, you know. But sadly, I haven't partaken in much with them. The only person I've spoken to personally in that group is Nancy. I have asked to speak to others, but I've never been given the opportunity. And I, I believe my knowledge in this is probably in excess of people like even Joanna Harper. Um, and, and, and sadly, they have not included me in that. So they haven't utilised. So they're not genuine. They're not genuine, especially coming out with this statement yesterday. Um, Nancy herself, a beautiful woman, and she truly, truly is not a transphobic person. But Nancy still doesn't understand, particularly the way she's calling out intersex women in this. It's really, really, you know, she's brought them into it. I, I don't like that at all. So um, they've got to go back to the drawing board on, on that women's sports policy group. They need to listen to more of girls like us in it. The balance isn't there. You know, they're only listening to, it looks like, young um, Juniper. It looks like they're using her as a bit of a, you know, Scapegoat, um, I suppose, to get their message out. And, and Juniper's young. Juniper's probably vulnerable, and and Juniper's not everything, you know. So I've got a lot to say to that sports policy group, and I'm prepared to say it and help them out and well, bring us closer together. But they haven't opened that door for me yet, you know. So they've got a lot of work to do. But Kirsty, one thing you said, Nancy, not a transphobe. Yeah, is Martina? Well. 
She's been very transphobic in the past. Absolutely. She's been horrifically transphobic in the past. And she's done nothing to shame me that she's not, like, actions prove louder than words. And she's like, one day she's supportive and one day she's not. So, yeah, I, I believe Martina's still a transphobe. Absolutely. Absolutely. But Nancy, definitely not. What's the one I'm happy thing? To call that. And I'd love to. I'd love to have Martina in the room. And, and I don't want to fight with Martina over this. I'd love to be able to educate Martina. But I think Martina thinks that she knows it all, and she totally doesn't. She totally doesn't. What is the one thing? If you had him here right now, what's the one thing from what you read and they put in Quillette? What's the one thing you want to tell them that they missed? The one thing. <laughs> I'd say talk more to actual people that have lived and breathed this stuff and stop listening to, to people like you know, Emma Hilton and people like that because they've never studied a transgender person in, in, in sport. They're, they're, not, they're not scientists in this. They're not experts at this. And, and, and stop talking about testosterone when you really don't know what you're talking about. Like It's getting quite embarrassing what they, they're talking about now. Um, yeah, I've reached out. I've reached out more than anyone, Carly. I've sent, like, so much information and, and they've chosen not to use it. So, you know, make up your own mind on that, like, how genuine are they as a group? That letter yesterday showed me that they really don't understand the, the basics in it, Doreen or Martina. They're still back. They're still back probably at 2018 level in their understanding. It's, you know, it's just total mixed messages from them. And we're hearing that red alert sound. You know what that means? We have to take a little bit of break and pay some bills. But when we come back, more things beyond the sporting arena, including let's talk. Let's talk about what this is really about. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and we have our good friend from Australia, friend of the podcast, Kirstie Miller, with us. And Kirstie, just before we went to break, you really, in a sense, you really took you really took some members of the Women's Sports Policy Working Group to task, on especially on some things they've said and written about the Aussie pro- policy. But I want to get into something I take them to task for. The one thing I think Nancy Hoggs had, and a lot of these people, even the Johanna Harpers, another a person I respect greatly as a researcher, is missing here is that the sports issue does not happen in a vacuum. If you're going to be involved in the sports issue, especially if you're calling for things like there must be testosterone regulations, there has to be hormones, you have to get into things like, in this country, it's the attempts to ban affirming care. And in your country right now, you have a federal bill calling for religious anti-discrimination, which is really discriminating on everybody else so that certain people like Margaret Court have, have a greater slay in Canberra than everyone else. And now in New South Wales, the state you live in, 
There's this education bill that will prohibit schools from teaching trans or gender diverse people and that they exist. What is that all about? How are you feeling about it? What has been, what's been the tenor of the discussion where you live on that bill? This, this is, we passed marriage equality back in 2017 in Australia. And when marriage equality passed, that they tried to push, push a lot of amendments through. So, and we, we had around 70 odd percent of Australians support, over 70 percent supported marriage equality. So, this is a religious right that have now tried to get their tentacles in. And, and since the marriage equality, they've tried to peg back. So it's firstly the losers still trying to dictate the terms, and and what this is in Australia, it's not a it's not a, a religious discrimination bill. It's a it's a religious bill of rights, and and there's no other bill of rights created in Australia. So this effectively um, prioritised the the religious bigoted, homophobic, racist, transphobic views over the rights of all other Australians, and. It not only um, allows for, for religious schools to refuse enrolment, um, to refuse employment or, or to sack a teacher or a, or a cleaner in a, in a nursing home or a, or a um, cleaner in a school or, or yeah, they can sack them or, or refuse them enrolment if they're, they're gay or lesbian or, or bi or trans, but they can do the same to kids. A kid in, in any religious school in Australia, they can be refused enrolment, and it happened to people two doors down from me. They had their little daughter refused enrolment at a Catholic school. So this strengthens the religious rights over everybody else. It's gonna um, and then within my own state of New South Wales, this amendment bill, um, education bill, we've got the religious discrimination bill is going to ban us in private religious schools but this one here is going to ban trans kids in public schools so you know effect, effectively genocide of the transgender community in in new south wales because new south wales is so backwards compared to say victoria in australia there's a the murray river is only about 50 meters across and for a young trans person in victoria to amend their birth certificate they need a statutory declaration and a, and a stat deck from two people that know them and, and, and they change their birth certificate but 50, 50 metres across the river in New South Wales, they're made to wait till they're 18, then they, they're forced to be surgically sterilised as a prerequisite to amend our birth certificates only 50 metres away. You know, so the, the life, the outcomes for a young trans person born on one side of the river is going to be far better than the one on the other side of the river, you know, just simply by law. So it's, it's it's like living a groundhog existence, I suppose, Carly, because, like, here you are in America and you know about this debate in Australia, and I'm very well aware of all the debates going on for trans stuff in America, and we're all aware of what's going on in the UK. So it's like a groundhog existence, you know, for all of us. We keep getting up and living... And, and we're having the same arguments here in New South Wales that you're having in Texas. And the same examples of girls competing in Connecticut are used in Texas, they're used in Sydney, they're used in Melbourne, they're used in Brisbane, you know? 
And it's just the same arguments over and over again, the same irrational fears of transgender people. And, and sport is just, you know, the follow-on from, from the bathroom debate, you know. We're an easy target. We're an absolute easy target. But the facts are can be so easily disproven that, that all this rhetoric that now... 2021, they've removed testosterone. Trans athletes are going to dominate women's sport. We heard the same exact arguments with Renee Richards in 76. We heard the same arguments in 2003 with the Stockholm guidelines of the OIC. We heard the same rhetoric in 2015, right? Still today, we only had two trans athletes even qualify to compete. Nine Olympic Games, we've had not at one single Division One NCAA champion fem- trans female in 10 years of, of no surgery and no tear requirement. So, like, to give an example, a recent um, uh, study of, of, of cisgender women and transgender women's testosterone levels, beyond athletes, it's just in the normal community, they tested around 500. 95% of the cisgender women had T levels below two, and 94% of the trans women had T levels below two. So, you know what I mean? There's this well, so that's, much rational fear. But, you know, that's one of the things that, that people don't understand is yeah, that yeah. when you go on HRT, you go on HRT. Yeah. You go. No, you don't. Like, I've had to deal with this with training partners, and they're like, well, your T numbers are probably under t- aren't aren't under that ten. Said so you're right; they're under five. People don't understand. That's to me. That's one of the biggest things. People don't understand what transition entails at, at one well, level. What, and Carly, what what they don't understand right is what they think it's HRT. They don't understand what HRT means. Yeah, HRT for a XY transgender person means we are being placed into a into a health status of complete androgen deprivation, right? Complete androgen deprivation. The first word says it in itself, complete, right? So males normally, if their normal level's around the 30, normally around 14 nanomole, their body goes into a complete androgen-deprived state. And people say it doesn't take away all the advantages, right? The only thing that does not mitigate is height. Androgen deprivation is premature aging. It kills you. It put Kirsty in the hospital. Now, a male, say we get a male athlete like Usain Bolt that somehow gets prostate cancer and needs to have either his gonads surgically or chemically removed, right? Usain Bolt, from the minute he wakes up from that surgery, he's going to suffer androgen deprivation. Right, and if he does not get testosterone put back into his body, synthetic T, he's going to suffer 200 different complications. The exact same complications that Kristen Worley proved in Toronto that happens to surgically transitioned women when they go through and have to compete and have their androgen needs denied. Because I should have had synthetic T about 12 years ago, Carly, but sports denied it, right? So a male athlete, they get a TUE and go and get the T put back into them and mm-hmm. they compete. If a male athlete doesn't get that, they're going to get osteoporosis. Have a look at the WADA policy TUE for testosterone for men hypogonadism. 
It says on the bottom, if treatment's withheld, they're going to suffer complete muscle atrophy. They're going to suffer osteoporosis. They're going to suffer suffer very low hemocrete levels. They're going to have end up with lung diseases. They're going to end up in the ICU like Kirsty did and nearly die from this stuff. So when they say it doesn't take away all the advantages, this stuff is killing us. Beyond sport, beyond sport, many, many girls like us now, and the science is evolving all the time, and I didn't know about this stuff until about five years post-operative, but I've now helped around 50 post-operative women all around the world to now be put back onto testosterone replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. And, and um, six months ago, my legs were completely black from this. They were actually black. They turned black. They were nearly ready to be chopped off. I was going to lose both my legs over this. And the only thing that saved my life and got my health back was getting my testosterone put back into my body. And I had a girlfriend in England recently took um, just an article I wrote saying, talking about the endo deprivation. She gave it to a endo specialist and he goes, finally, it makes sense. And he prescribed the testosterone on that minute, you know. So, and, and, and the thing is, WADA and the OIC have known about this since about 2006 that these policies made as well, but they covered up and covered up until Kristen held them accountable in 2017 in Toronto, right, where she proved beyond any doubt that this makes us unwell. There was no science to relate to our health from, like, 2003 onwards. So it's no debate anymore. So any of these people that want to debate this stuff, they're not in the debate anymore. The OIC have got this science, they've got this research, and that's why they made this decision today. It was a gender issue that got us here, not an intersex issue, not a cisgender woman's issue. It was actually a gender question that got us here, a transgender question through Kristen Wally. She's the reason why we're here today. That was going to be my next question as well. How important was that, was the fight that she has put up for really about 15 years Ah, to get to the the decision that, that was made? Kristen Wally should go down in sport as a, as a woman, and she will one day, when history will show that she's the woman that actually got global sports to recognise women's health needs. Because, Carly, if, if under the WADA system, WADA is meant to be about health of athletes, right? Yes. Not making athletes well, right? Yes. And what the IAAF and what WADA have done with these TUE policies for for women like us and women like Caster to compete, right? Now, we've just talked about what they have for men that have the low T. They make them better, right? The policy of the DSD policy and the blanket policy of the OIC, the trans athletes before, and the one that Caster competes under, that is doing the opposite. That's making these people that the OIC... Yes, it's it's hurting it. Making them unwell, right? Yes, it's hurting it. Yeah, exactly. but Kristen a lot of this, all... to, yeah, and Kristen was able. Kristen was the very, very first athlete sex verified under the two thousand three policy, and Kristen. Not many people are aware. Kristen actually represented her country as a as a man and a woman. Not many people aware that she's actually the second, I believe, trans athlete that's done that besides Hannah Mouncey. And when Kristen tried to re-enter sport. Her body broke down at about 2005, 2006, right? And she went to a doctor and her doctor said, look, you need testosterone put back in your body. So Kristen went and, and the OSC wouldn't let her. So 
she challenged it and it took from about 2006 to 2017 to get the court decision. But what happened with Kristen was unique. Under the OIC umbrella, every athlete must sign an athlete's agreement, right? Kristen was very lucky. For some reason, she forgot to sign her agreement. And that allowed her to take this court case above and beyond Cass. Any other athlete that signs that athlete's agreement is bound to keep it at Cass unless they remove themselves from sport. So Kristen chose to, re- to lose her own career over this, right, to fight for the better cause of the, the health of... Because it's never been a transgender or an intersex issue. It's been a women in sport health issue. So it's massive, massive what Kristen's done. And then she's often forgotten in this why we're here today. Like, without any doubt, the reason we got here was due to a gender question. What is it about these issues and what you're just talking about? What we're really looking at here and what we're really going back to is a sense is even in sport, there's a great deal, especially about women's bodies, that frankly, medicine doesn't know about and sports medicine certainly doesn't know about. Uh, Carly, like sport does not understand still today why there is a gender gap in sport. Now, it's definitely not all to do with biology and chromosomes. Like, I've got no doubt that the reason for the gender gap in sport that still remains, the number one reason is the attitudes against women in strength sports. And, and, and any woman that shows any form of masculinity is called transgender or intersexed or so, you know, like we're having little well, girls. Being or, born or let's and, be real. Let, let's talk about what this is about. Uh, yeah. You're not feminine. It's about women. Yeah. It's, it's, you're not feminine enough. Yeah. yeah policing yeah. women's bodies at, at one level. It's policing women's actions in another. It yeah. is about, it is about what we like. It's it's misogyny. Let's just put that word out there. That's it what is, this absolutely. is. And you've got to think of the people that have run these global sporting organisations, Carly. They're all being white, heterosexual, well-off, middle-aged men, and they've always defined femininity on, on the white woman. It's always been on Norma and Norm, you know? It's never been based on, on femininity. It's always been based on white women, and no more so than in the world athletics. They're, they're the worst now, place in the world for Now, this. Kirsty, you realize you're going to get your white express card revoked for what you just said. Well, <laughs> because, no, but that's one thing I've noticed about that's you. True. I want to get I want to get with you up close and personal for a second. I mean, yeah. I mean, granted that it is true. A lot of sporting governing bodies look like Dominique Paratet. Yes. They do. They do. <laughs> oh, we're, oh, we're not done with him yet, but... I, but I also noticed the things you see on Twitter, and not just about this issue, things such as Aboriginal rights in your home country, yes. uh, uh, the matter of, remember, you worked in the prison system, so you saw firsthand how race factors into crime and punishment, just like it does here in the United States, it does there. You're talking about all these different issues. And of course, about the premier you have in New South Wales, who's pushing a lot of this, who's pushing a lot of this stuff, hard, yeah. something of a hard righty liberal party, a hard hard right kind yeah. of guy. Folks, if you have, if you want to like get an in, if you want to learn about Australia, go to Kirsty's Twitter. 
because you'll get well, you you'll get better views on Australia than you will get from seven or ten. I'll tell you that now. Well, a lot of people, Carly, think of Australia and think of the lucky country that not many people realise that our our Aboriginal community are are actually now only in the last couple of years are now jailed at a higher rate than African Americans in America. We have not got one jurisdiction in Australia that jails black males at a rate less than the apartheid days in, in, in South Africa. Um, we, we had a Royal Commission of Aboriginal Deaths and Custody back in 1991, um, and, and the number one recommendation was that, and, and the reason for, for, the, for the incarceration rate was disadvantage, that they identified the solutions back 30 years ago address the solutions in the community, the disadvantage. So what's Australia done since? The, the, the Aboriginal Indigenous employment rate has actually increased 12 times faster than white Australia since the Royal Commission. We've now got the most incarcerated Indigenous community in the world. We've now got um, just finished a 12-year Closing the Gap program, um, which was eight years Labor, four year, uh, eight years Liberal, four years Labor, they had seven criteria, spent billions and billions of dollars, and not one of the key criteria were met. Um, this Aboriginal Australians are still dying way over a decade um, earlier than, than white Australians. Um, and, you know, the thing is, since that 1991 um, Royal Commission and the 12 times increase in imprisonment rate, the, it, crime rates right across the board have fallen dramatically at the same time. So Australia, like our American and, and British cousins, are, are building these factories and they're virtually criminal, criminalised um, being disadvantaged. Is, is now a crime in Australia. And it's, you know, like an Aboriginal woman gets jailed about 21 times more likely than, than, uh, than a non-Aboriginal woman. At one time last year, we had 100% of the children in custody in the Northern Territory were Aboriginal kids where they're only about 3% of the population. Now, systemic racism in Australia is rife and it's getting worse. We only just had a, a it's okay to be white um, a, a bill just, just, just narrowly defeated in the Australian Senate. With wait a minute, the, wait a minute the what? It's okay to be white policy and all white Australia policy. Only about two years ago, it was a bill raised by Pauline Hanson, One Nation, supported by Liberal senators, LNP senators. It was only just narrowly defeated about 27, 28 or something in the Senate. Yeah, that was only a couple of years ago in Australia. So Australia is a very racist country. Um, it's, it's got no it just the numbers speak for itself. You know, well, the numbers absolutely speak for themselves. I mean, and of course... And, I, and I am a well, big advocate of defunding prisons, right? And... When people hear this buzzword, defund prison, they think we're going to let all these people go, right? Defunding prisons is not about that. What defunding prisons is, and it's a word I like to use instead of defunding prisons, it's justice reinvestment. Instead of using the word defund, so what we're doing is we're taking money out of the police fund, we're taking money out of the, the prisons and the courts funds, and we're reinvesting that money back into the communities where they've got low unemployment, where they've got health issues, where they've got drug and alcohol issues. And there's been programs run in Australia of this justice reinvestment in places like Burke, who had some of the highest crime rates in Australia, 
And and within two years, they'd reduced like domestic violence by about 60%. Crime rates had fallen like over 60%. And it was going to save millions and millions of dollars. So it made economic sense. It made social sense. It made, you know, like we've got to address these issues, Carly. We can't just keep having this revolving door and, and shelving long-term reforms, you know. Now, one thing. What do trans people in Australia need? Uh, we need consistency in our, in our laws. We need a Bill of Rights, number one. Every Australian needs a Bill of Rights, but no more so than trans people, right? Um, we don't need this ad hoc approach where we've got gender reassignment in, 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 in um, one state and not the other, like to change the birth certificate. So that's number one. We need yeah. across the board rules. Well, we, you were just talking we need about. need to be listened to. Yeah, we need to be listened to more. We need, instead of having the Australian newspaper, have a, a whole dedicated section to gender issues and print a transphobic article out every week for like the last three years and only have about two of those articles on written by actual trans people. We need you know, newspapers and the media to, to, to start hearing from us, not talking about us. Um, we definitely don't need the Prime Minister in his first ever tweet when he comes to power his very first tweet, can you imagine that going through your whole political career and the very first thing that you'll proudly want to tweet is uh, uh, um, putting out a tweet about gender whisperers in schools? You know, he's, he's worried that there's these little people running around turning trans kids trans in schools. Well, in Australia, we've got a national school chaplaincy scheme where they employ religious chaplains in schools. And, and these are in the public schools, not the, 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 the um, religious schools. And it's against our constitution to have a government job that's got a religious, you must be religious to get. But they're breaching the, the constitution doing this. I see religious whisperers in our school way, way before trans whispers or gender whisperers. Religious, there's never been a royal commission in Australia where trans or gay people have systematically covered up the sexual abuse of children for decades. But we've had that against the Catholic Church, Hillsong Church, every church in Australia, scout groups, Salvation Army, you know, like that they always try to make us to be the scary guy. Like trans women in dresses are not the scary people in dresses in Australia. It's the priests and then like Cardinal Pell sexually abusing children and covering it up for decades. And it's not ifs or buts. It was found by way of royal commission in Australia that these churches rape children covered it up and now these ones are trying to set the rules still like come on you've always made a point even driving a cab in broken hill talk to people let people know no this i am a trans person here's who here's who i am here's who we are how valuable is that even on twitter and even with people like ross tucker <laughs> I, I honestly believe well when, when I got vilified on that football field and, and I was either going to run away or, or or get to meet the town, that's when I decided to become that taxi driver. And it's, it's it proved absolutely invaluable to humanise this stuff, you know. Like I, this broken hill back in 2013 was still the most homophobic town in Australia. And and we, we had our first – the first ever Mardi Gras held outside of Sydney or a capital city was – Called here in 2013, the year I got vilified, right? And 
we had about 14 people attend and no one watching it. And everyone made fun of us from whatever pub. We did like a pub brawl. And we were the laughing stock, right? But me driving the cab and people doing that pride thing then and just locals getting to, to, to meet us and seeing that we're human, that's turned this town around, Carly, where now in 2021 that little Mardi Gras that had 14 people is now the biggest event in Broken Hill by far. Um, we get like 10,000 people here. The town shuts down for a week and, and everyone's in drag and everyone's – and now it's like – if you're not in drag, you're sort of weird out here in that week, you know. You're like, <laughs> like so, like, it's it's absolutely like we've got to get trans people in all walks of life, you know, because when you see a trans person doing something as a trans person for the first time, it opens up a dream for others, you know. And like seeing Laurel on that stage at the Olympics, young trans kids, it, it, it created a dream. It's possible, you know. It's, even though I might have only been a taxi driver, you know, I could have reached out and, and, and just shown all these other young trans kids that look at Kirsty walk around being herself, you know, and she's not getting laughed at. She's getting, you know, she's getting treated well in Broken Hill. And, and this is really important. Like now, if you come to Broken Hill and start talking about trans stuff, even if it's at a nursing home, I guarantee these old girls will know what the language is out here because. We're the most educated town in the world, and it didn't happen from reading books. It didn't happen from protests or, or, or whatever. It just happened from people treating each other as humans, getting to know each other. And I did the same thing with with um, Sam Newman, one of the – Yes, I wanted to get to a, that. I yeah, wanted to get to that. Sam Newman. Yeah. Sam Newman's got a history of – like from back in the nineties, he's done a lot of. He's been in a lot of trouble to doing blackface and doing this, and he's one of the old timers, you know. But when I come across Sam, he done this. He dressed up and put the lipstick on and and made out he's going to transition one day and compete the next and rah rah rah. So I thought I want to go down and meet this guy in Melbourne. So I had a mate that that um, actually did a podcast with Sam. So I said, "Can you get me down? I want to." I didn't want to abuse him. I thought. I can educate him if he just gets to spend a bit of time with Kirsty, you know. And now, like, about two and a half years later, Sam is um, probably one of my best friends. Sam still doesn't understand the transport stuff because he really just doesn't understand it, but he's trying to learn that stuff the more I speak to him. But a lot of the people against transgender athletes for start, Carly, they're not against transgender women, but the sports stuff is – been from what they've been told from day one that men are stronger than women. It's, it's all about education, you know. And the only way that trans athletes to dispel the mess is by more of us playing the game. I want to end it with this. Because of all these things you've talked about, all the work you've done, your willingness to, put, to, stick, to, to stick your neck out, to put your voice out there, and with all the issues that you're discussed, Ten hours drive south from you is Australian Capital Territory. Canberra. By, by Australian law, there must be an election by 21 May 2022. Will we see your name on a ballot? Absolutely. Would you, 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 you currently have an MP who's a part of the coalition. Will Kirsty Miller be a part of Australian Decision 2022? 
I absolutely would would adore to be in there because I think Australian politics needs people like me. And I did put my hand up as a candidate of the new Liberal Party, but area where I am is the biggest electorate in Australia. It's about big. It's bigger than Tasmania. It's huge, and I probably need about three hundred thousand dollars just to to enter a campaign out here. So the chances of me getting that kind of campaign is probably minimal, but. Absolutely. If, if I could get Climate 200 behind me, or, or uh, absolutely, because I know, I know I could do well in Parliament. I know that Australia would love to see me in question time every single day. I would hold these bastards to account. No one would get away with anything. And, and we need trans representation in there, you know. And, and where I am, the, the, the lecture that I'm in, we need to change the government more than ever because. This is where the, 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 the river was stopped and they emptied the Menindee Lakes here, nine times Sydney Harbour, and killed a million fish. Like, they're killing our people. They're killing our environment out here. And, um, you know, like, we, we just need a massive big change in this electorate. So, yeah, I, I'd love to run Carly um, just at the moment. I just haven't got the, the funds to do so. But in the meantime, I'm working with um, a few progressive parties on, on a couple of their policies and that. So... Yeah, I've got my finger in the pie and and I am good at holding some people to account and yeah, yeah, it's all we all playing our part, Carly, but yeah, if you can get me three hundred grand, I'll run tomorrow. <laughs> if I had that three hundred grand, I'd be throwing it to you. <laughs> Kirsty Kirsty Miller, it's always a pleasure. It's always good having you and it's always good all but more importantly, it's good having your voice in the debate. I'm proud to see. And it would Absolutely be and proud. And it would be my hope that if the IOC needs consultants, I know at least two people they need to be calling. They need to be calling you, and they need to be calling Caroline Late, and they need to be calling. They need to be calling people like a Hannah Muncy. Yeah, they need to be calling. Care. It's time to make amends with Kirsten Worley by bringing these people in. That's the one thing I've. I want to see is I want to see trans people when these decisions and rules are being made because we have an opportunity to remake the rules. I want to see trans people at those ta- at those tables, help etching Absolutely. out what we, the we new policies are being. In this. We have to be centered in this, and the OIC have actually said that they want survivors, and there is survivors in this. We're all survivors that have competed under these regulations. People like us that have been put in the ICU are all survivors of this. So we definitely have to be centered going forward. Gonna beam you back down. Thanks for being with us today, Kirsty Miller. And thanks to all of you for being a part of the transporter room, for being supporters, for listening, for watching, and for all you've done, not just today, but all throughout this year. And as we get into the final month of the year, I can tell you, we've got some great shows coming up over these next few weeks as we get to the end of the year. But if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what we're doing, leave a message at our Twitter page, leave a message at our Facebook and now you can also leave us a message at our new Instagram site, Transporter Room 10 Forward. Remember, everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for you, the people who support us. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper and steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.